Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 39. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And on today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Sarah Hunter-Murray. We have a great discussion about the most common myths surrounding masculinity, sexuality and men in general. I uh, really loved Sarah's new book, which is Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex and Pleasure. Actually had a bit of a fanboy moment uh, when I was interviewing her. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about Sarah. She has a PhD in human sexuality from the University of Guelph and is a registered marriage and family therapist in private practice in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And like I said, she's the author of the book, Not Always in the, Mu- <laughs> Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men's Sex and Relationships. And we spend a bit of time discussing her research that she presents in it, as well as her observations about men and women in relationships. So we also explore some practical advice for men as well as their partners uh, to overcome the myths and stereotypes that may be hindering them in their relationships. You can find Sarah's research and her practice at her website, which is sarahhuntermurray.com. And I've also put a link in the show notes to her book, Not Always in the Mood. 100% highly recommend checking out that book. It busts a lot of myths. It goes into a lot more depth than what we do in this podcast today. Uh, it's just a uh, staple, I feel like, for anyone who's interested in men and masculinity and sexuality or who is working with men in these realms. So uh, you can probably tell that I loved this conversation with Sarah and I hope you do too. You just stand there and smile while these kids get the impression that sex is dirt and lust and love are the same thing. That it's okay to try perversion just for kicks. When a man becomes sexually excited, blood rushes into the chambers in the spongy erectile tissues in his penis. You can use your knowledge with responsibility and real love, or you can use it wantonly and with mere animal appetite. It's your effect. Well, uh, the first... A thing that I always do when I get people onto the onto the show is to um, invite them to to share a little bit about their story. So I, I'd love to give you the floor for a couple of moments and uh, invite you to share a bit about maybe the work that you're doing, how you came to be doing this work, and maybe even uh, where the inspiration for the book came from as well, because that's something we're going to be talking about today. So yeah, I'd love to hand it over to you for a couple of minutes. That's great. Um, so my name's Sarah Hunterbury. Um, I um, uh, I've got a background in sex research, and I was really interested um, during my graduate studies about um, women's sexuality and women's sexual desire specifically. And part of that is because I am a woman, and you know, I just kind of, you know, through my lived experience talking with friends, you know, we we always kind of talk about when are you in the mood, you know, what gets you going, how often are you having sex, like, is it weird that you know, I haven't wanted to have sex in so long. And I just watched this kind of like racy show and all of a sudden my libido's up and, you know, like women, I was familiar with these experiences myself. And I was familiar, like talking with other women about these experiences. And as I became involved in the sex research world, it became clear that there was a lot of us who were curious about women's sexual desire. We start using words that women's desire is complex and elusive. 
Um, there's all these factors that impact women's desire. And so the research world is full of really great and important questions about women's sexuality and our interest in sex specifically. Um, a few years down the road, you know, even like after engaging in some like really interesting research, it started to kind of strike me that we were just talking about women's sexual desire and there really wasn't a conversation that was being had about men's desire. In fact, what we were talking about with men's desire was a lot of assumptions. It was saying that unlike men who have kind of high or maybe it was implied that their desire was like simple and kind of omnipresent, you know, we need to study women's desire because it's all these complex things. The assumption is that men's isn't There's not really much to study. And that's why we haven't really gone there. And so when I started my PhD and I was kind of considering what I would do for my dissertation, it struck me as um, maybe that's worth exploring. Like, is that an assumption that is valid? Is that fair? Is that representative of men's experiences? Or perhaps are we kind of missing the mark? Um, so for my dissertation, I, um, I'm a qualitative researcher, so I love talking to people. I love hearing stories. You know, numbers are great, but I, I just really like hearing like the experiences that people have. And so, um, you know, I just proposed to interview men who are in longer term relationships to understand what does your sexual desire look like? Are these assumptions and stereotypes about desire being high and possibly kind of simple and you always being in the mood true? Or is there maybe a little bit more happening um, underneath the surface that we're not really talking about? Um, so I'm sure we'll, we'll chat about it over the course of our, our talk today. But, um, you know, spoiler, um, there's a lot more to men's sexual desire than, than those um, typical um, stereotypes, you know, that we, we kind of have learned so much about in our society. Mm, yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing a bit of that. And is that... Um... Is that the work that you do now? Do you exclusively work with men? Are you working with um, women? Are you working with couples? What's your what's your client base at the moment then? Good question. Um, so since graduating, um, I've been a little bit more involved in the research world. Um, and I've written a book, um, which we'll talk about in a bit, not always in the mood, um, The New Science of Men, Sex and Relationships. Um, but mostly I've, in the last couple of years, really shifted towards my therapeutic practice. So I'm a registered marriage and family therapist practicing in Winnipeg, which is in Canada. And I see um, a lot of men, a lot of women, a lot of couples. And, you know, more and more people tend to find me and want to talk about, you know, men's sexuality and men's sexual issues because I'm kind of out there talking about it a little bit more. So I do get found that way. Um, so that's certainly a big piece. But it's interesting. There's sometimes where men will contact me directly to kind of explore their sexuality and their sexual desires, right? They might have concerns about having a low libido or they're concerned that, you know, a partner has more interest in sex and they're kind of questioning what's going on for them. I also have women reaching out, even without their male partners, um, you know, saying that they have questions about their partner's sexuality based on his whole interest. And then I work with lots and lots of couples where they could be coming to talk about a myriad of sexuality issues. And it just happens because I, I find it, you know, once you're once you're looking for it and paying attention to these issues, they just start showing up more and more in your office. Lots of things where people just might be talking about mismatched libidos. They might be talking about just kind of low satisfaction in general, um, sexually. And, and then we start kind of realizing that some of these narratives about men and desire and masculinity are in some way, shape or form kind of um, just wedging their way in there and making things a little bit more complicated for people than they need to be. 
Yeah, yeah. I I see the same thing, and uh, everything you've just shared that resonates with with me and the work that I'm doing. And um, you're right; these kind of unacknowledged narratives and assumptions and stereotypes that we have about masculinity and the way men are quote unquote supposed to express their sexuality. Um, what do you think uh, perpetuates? Where do you think these narratives come from? Uh, that's a bit of a loaded question. I've got a pretty um, definitive answer where I think they come from, but I was wondering where do you see these narratives kind of coming from? Yeah, well, I'd love to hear your answer. Um, but if my understanding is, you know, there's some theories that exist, you know, and we can kind of agree with them or disagree with them and challenge them. But I mean, just starting with, with like even evolutionary theory. I mean, if for those of us who kind of talk, about, you know, you know, how we're wired, how we're built, there is this idea that men have historically benefited from being highly, um, you know, interested in sex, being able to see that there is a female partner available to them. And, you know, if I'm in the mood and we have sex, there's a better chance of kind of passing on my genes. And so, you know, that is an evolutionary theory in a very simplified form. And if there's evolutionary theories, I'm sure they have a lot more to say, like you didn't mention this, but like in a nutshell, that's kind of a, a bit of it. Um, there's also, you know, sexual script theory. And so separate from how we are quote unquote wired, um, you know, men and women are still raised with very strict ideas of what we are supposed to be. And so, especially, I mean, I think things are changing and I think things are changing for the, for the good, but I mean, talking to most people, if, you know, I'm not sure what the cutoff point is, but I mean, for my clients, you know, they're all adults, but twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, and beyond, most men will say they receive messages like boys don't cry, or, you know, they receive messages that if you aren't having sex, like, you know, their, their sexual orientation is being called into question. Um, you know, men are told to go and get, you know, laid and, you know, the notch in their belt. Like there's so much language we have around, you know, bolstering men up if they are sexually expressive and, you know, having sexual conquests and, you know, having that high sexual desire, like that is revered in our society. Um, and so I think men, um, and, and I, I can speak to both my clients and folks in my research, you know, men will say that there is this masculine norm out there and it dictates what their sexuality should be. And so we see this in, um, you know, in, in lyrics and songs, we see these men portrayed in movies and TV shows. The idea of this like male stud who can't get enough sex is always interested. A woman kind of gives some suggestive look. He's right there, ready to go, doesn't need any like warming up. Um, so these messages are, I think, are ingrained on a really deep, deep level for many of us. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you on, on all accounts there. And I am... Um, I see, and I've, I've just taken to Instagram the last couple of posts to kind of break down the men desire sex more than women do, like idea and narrative and um, talking talking at it and talking about it from an essentialist uh, perspective, like from that kind of evolutionary theory framework and Bateman's anisogamy principles and Trivers parental investment theory and that sort of stuff. And just kind of breaking down and offering some more nuance to that conversation. And then also, uh, you know, approaching it from that social constructionist perspective as well and talking about scripts and the congratulatory messages that men receive for you know sowing their wild oats and you know boys will be boys type you know language that we use and um and then looking at the the narratives from yeah like you said uh, uh song lyrics and tv shows and hollywood movies and pornography and mainstream media in general uh the the um the idea that really resonates with me is what Paul Kivel in the 1980s called the act like a man box. 
um, the framework for like this unwritten set of rules that men have to follow in order for them to be quote unquote a real man. And if they don't follow that set of rules, if they don't act and perform their masculinity so that it stays within that box, then they get um, bullied and ridiculed and criticized and ostracized. And, um, and you know, that makes you conform. It makes you want to stick to that norm, that masculine norm that you were referring to and what a lot of guys kind of resonate with. So um, I also see this perpetuated in academia as well, as you, as you kind of shared, like the, the thing that I always go back to is the um, Masters and Johnson's human sexual response models. And, you know, the, the original ones from the 1960s, I think 66 it was, the, the male and female sexual response models almost looked identical. They were very, very similar, right? And then over the, over the years, we've had all these critiques and criticisms and revisions of the female sexual response model. Um, you know, we got um, you know, Basson and Coates and all these other Kaplan, all these other amazing revisions um, to, to kind of deconstruct and break down and, and offer nuance to female sexuality. But the 1966 model for male sexual response is pretty much still the same one that we use for men today, right? 40, 50 years later. Um, and I think that perpetuates this narrative that we have that men's desire is simple and that they just get it up, get it in and get it off. And that women's desire is complex and, and you know, hard to understand. And, and I think, you know, I, I often kind of wonder to myself, is that, is that you know, society... And, and our norms kind of influencing what we study or is it science kind of reinforcing and perpetuating the societal norms that we have? And I think maybe there's a bit of a two-way street there with, with regards to what it is that we study and how we study it. And it's a great point. And, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, as researchers, you know, we're humans, so we're, we're raised in a society. And so that informs the questions that we're asking. And I think there's a bit of a, you know, a cycle happening there. And it's interesting because um, Rosemary Basson, um, who you were referring to her, you know, sexual response cycle and it being more, you know, uh, responsive and, you know, the cycle and talking about more of the complexities for women's experiences. She came out more recently. I mean, one of her earlier publications in the early 2000s was called, I might not get it verbatim, but it was about human sexual response. Like she was talking about something that could be applied to men and women. And in an interview more recently, she said the intention was to say this applies for men and women. But at the time, there was a lot more attention, both in terms of what was getting published and what was getting picked up in the media to talk about women's sexual desire, because, you know, the sex research world had a history of focusing more on men's experiences. And so there was this big shift to talking about women's experiences, which that needed to be talked about. There's no question. But it's interesting that we just had this pendulum shift versus a both and, right? I mean, men's sexual desire just got kind of thrown out with the baby in the bathwater, whatever the expression is. And we just started focusing almost exclusively on women's desire. So it's interesting that some of these theories have been intentionally um, applicable to men's desire. And now I think we're starting to kind of bring that back into the works. But, um, you know, there's certainly a political and social um, shaping of the research that's getting done. I mean, we're not doing this as completely objective um, you know, people, because we are humans with these full social experiences that are impacting the work that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something you said at the start of your sharing was um, you got into research with regards to female sexuality, because that's your lived experience, right? You're a, you're a woman, you're female, you, you experience female sexuality. And similarly, for me, the reason why I went down the path of like, 
learning about masculinity and male sexuality and men's experiences of pleasure is because I was like, that's my lived experience. That's what I can relate to, right? That's what I understand and, and embody. I know that word gets tossed around a lot, but that's what I embody. I'm embodying that male sexuality. And that's what I wanted to understand more of because I didn't feel like the way that I was supposed to or should, quote unquote, should express my sexuality was resonating with me. I felt very restrictive and very... Um, very constrictive as well. Like I, I felt like it was, I was really boxed in with regards to how I was expressing my own um, sexual self. And so like I went down on this big journey to explore, um, you know, what, what men's bodies were capable of, like what the male body could experience. And, um, you know, that took me to things like, you know, um, prostate orgasms and multiple orgasms and all these other ways that the male body could experience pleasure, particularly um, because, and I, I always refer back to the the human sexual response model from Masters and Johnson, like it's just got this ejaculation, right? This orgasm, which is conflated together. And we know that that's kind of, you know, those are two separate physiological processes. And, and you're starting to like open up this um, rigid way that you know, guys were expected to um, express their sexuality was so like freeing and liberating for me personally. And when I started to talk to other guys about it, they were like, whoa, oh my God, like there's actually other ways that I can you know, be sexual. There's other ways that I can you know, express and experience sexuality. I don't have to be so linear and so simple and so superficial and straightforward. And guys were just like starting to go, Oh my God, there's a big light bulbs moment for me. I can, I can actually start to do more things. And, um, that's kind of what spurred my work on and, and, and why I still continue to do this work, I think is because there's guys out there that just feel kind of trapped with regards to how they express themselves. And if they don't you know, live up to that masculine norm, then they feel all this anxiety and all this pressure and they think something's wrong with them. Um, when very often there's something that's not wrong with them, they're, they're probably expressing themselves in a very normal, um, normal way. It's just about deconstructing those narratives and normalizing their expression of sexuality. And that's a big part of like what I do anyway, is like normalizing what it is that they express themselves as. And I was wondering, is that similar to, to yourself? Do you kind of see all this problematizing or, um, you know, pathologizing of their own way that they express themselves and then actually going, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You just have a different way of expressing your sexuality. Definitely. And it's so interesting because again, both from my clinical experience and research experience, um, you know, men that I talk to seem to be very acutely aware of these stereotypes and what it means to be a man and what that means in terms of desire. And again, like always being in the mood and, you know, having this high sex drive and, you know, being ready at the drop of a hat. And it's interesting because what ha seems to happen is that men are talking or what they've shared with me is that there's this kind of internalization of these social scripts. Like it starts in classrooms and locker rooms and, you know, the bar, wherever else, where there's kind of this like, oh, hey, dude, did you, you know, like the, the, the bravado, right? The, the, the kind of, you know, social, um, you know, rewards that the guy who got laid last night seems to get versus the one who's not really talking about sex. But the thing is, over time, you know, men are sharing with me that like this really becomes something that they wrestle with internally. And, you know, I think for us, as we get older, maybe there's fewer of those interactions, right? We kind of mature a bit and maybe there's fewer of those like, hey, high five, did you get laid last night? I mean, fine if you do, but like um, that, that happens less and less and more. It's kind of this internal dialogue. Like I have an idea of what a man is supposed to be. I have an idea that I'm supposed to be in the mood maybe even kind of interpersonal with a partner, especially, you know, with the context of my research, this, these are like heterosexual relationships where we're confronting messages that women receive with messages that men receive and what happens when we start interacting with each other. You know, women are socialized to, 
think that, uh, you know, their male partner should be turned on in a minute by them, right? That they should, like that suggests that he's attracted to me if he's not getting an erection or if he's not like paying lots of attention to me sexually, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with our relationship. And so what I hear more than, you know, worrying about what someone's like best friend is going to think or what their colleague is going to think about them. It becomes like, what do I think about myself? Do I like, do I measure up to my own ideas of masculinity with regards to my desire? And am I going to disappoint my female partner? (laughs) Is she going to think I'm less than a man if I'm not up for having sex tonight? If I say no, if I'm not turned on, if I'm like, oh, it's just not working for me. Can we try later? Like that internal wrestling is, is what seems to kind of, um, really being, you know, detrimental to, to men's experiences again, from like my, my research and clinical experience. And because of that, we don't get to have these conversations. So I think what's so important about, you know, us talking now and the work that you're doing and the work I'm trying to do over on my end over here is just be having these conversations so that, you know, people can hear different stories and be like, Oh, there are other guys who have that too. There's other guys that aren't always in the mood. There's other guys whose desire isn't there constantly that, There's other guys who have more of an emotional connection that needs to be felt during sex. And it's like not just physical, that other men say no, that other men like feeling desired, that like rejection is really hard because sex is vulnerable. Like, I think just being able to hear and confront these things is so key, right? To hear like, oh, it's not just me. That is totally normal. But it's not the stuff that got talked about in most people's, again, kind of the stereotype, like, you know hockey locker room in Canada. I'm not sure in Australia what like big sporting locker room like analogy might be, but, um, but you know, like those aren't the conversations that are happening. Like, Hey, you know, do you guys sometimes say no to sex? Like that's not really what 16, 17 year olds at their formative years are really talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I love everything you've just shared then. And one of the things that I always talk to couples and men about is the, the, heterosexual men particularly the women that you're being sexual with your partners have the same stories about masculinity that that you have right we get the same conditioning we get the same messages so um so when i'm working with men particularly i'm like you know one of the things you might have to do is when you explore your own masculinity and what that kind of looks like and alternative ways of expressing yourself you might also have to do a little bit of educating with regards to your partner as well you might need to explain to her like hey just because i don't have an erection doesn't mean i'm turned on or just because i don't ejaculate doesn't mean that i'm not experiencing pleasure or you know all these other things that um that they learn about themselves oftentimes i'll have to do a little bit of like explaining and educating to their partner um, and just invite them into those alternative expressions of their sexuality as well because yeah we all get the same messages about men and, and sex and um and and you're right in in these locker rooms i reflect on my own experience playing sport um and being in a locker room the um the way that sex and sexuality is talked about is um it's it's superficial it's it's like not it's not taken seriously it's all a bit of a big joke um something that i've said before online um is men think more about women's pleasure than they do about their own and you know i i go on to explain that with the locker room analogy and say no guys in the locker room are saying oh i experienced all this pleasure in my body and like i had this you know really intense orgasmic sensation like guys aren't talking about that what they're saying in the locker room to their mates is yeah i made her orgasm this many times and she was this loud and i like i gave her all this pleasure and so they like prioritize and emphasize there and I always preface this by saying their perceived partner's pleasure, right? It's ne- never really necessarily their real pleasure because that you know 
needs to be talked about with regards to faking orgasms and all that sort of stuff. But like guys will prioritize their partner's pleasure over like their own gratification. Guys are just like limited to this five second sticky white crotch sneeze. That's what they think anyway. And so like they, they go, oh, well, I, I can only have this amount of pleasure, but she can have all this. And so I'm just going to like focus on that. And then they talk about it in that way as well, in this really grandiose way of, of thinking that they're kind of God's gift to women as well. So yeah, the way that language and the way that we talk about, um, you know, our sexual experiences is really important as well. And that's something I do with uh, men in groups is like, you know, let's talk about sex in a different way. Let's talk about your experiences in a bit of a different way. And, and that tends to open up doors for guys to go, oh, wow, you know, what am I actually experiencing during sex? Do I actually enjoy the sex that I'm having is, is just, you know, thrusting away. Is that actually enjoyable for me? Do I actually want to do something else? And it starts to break down some of those um, rigid constraints that they might have around their sexuality. And, and I, I wanted to transition into, um, I've got written next to me here, the, the 10 beliefs that we have around um, men's sexuality and men's experiences of pleasure as per um, what you've written in your book. And these uh, resonated with me so deeply and um, I, I wanted to, to go through them. I don't know if you know them off the top of your head. I, I, don't, I didn't want to like just quiz you and be like, hey, what are the 10 10 beliefs because um, i know it's a whole book it's not just those 10 beliefs but um is there ones that um that stand out to you or is there ones that are really um that kind of like shocked you when you kind of like broke down the research for it yeah um i was thinking i was like can i do the top 10 off the top of my head i mean obviously i wrote the book but it's also been um but no i have a pretty good sense of what they are um but uh you know the thing that i i I'm not sure if it's necessarily what I'll start with is the one that shocked me. I'm, I'll, I'll talk about the ones that kind of surprised me in a moment, if that's okay. But I think what, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, interactions between men and women in these sexual relationships based on the socialization is my first two chapters kind of talk about how just generally speaking, there are lots of men who have low desire and low desire that they would even consider to be problematically low, right? Like not just, you know, it's kind of, you know, the spectrum, you know, th this is like, it distresses me. It's causing problems for me or my relationship. And like studies are showing that about 15% of men might fall in that category at any given time. So I think, first of all, it's just important to like name that, say, you know what, if you have low sexual desire, you are not alone. If you feel like it's problematically low, you're rarely in the mood, it's causing distress you are not alone. And it, you know, there's things that we can do to kind of, you know, work on that. If that's something that you want to increase your desire, like if that's something that's like having a problem, um, you know, a negative impact for you or your relationship, and that's something you actually want to change, there are things we can do. The second chapter kind of talks about how that plays out between men and women specifically. And I think what we have this idea is not just that men's desire is supposed to be high, but men's desire is supposed to be higher than their female partner, right? Like men are the ones who want sex. They are the ones who are initiating sex. They're the ones who are kind of encouraging sexual activity. And women are like the gatekeepers who say yes or no. And so they're more like, as a woman, you know, raised to kind of be more responsive. You know, if he initiates, then maybe you say yes, but it's also okay to say no. Um, but what we know from the research is that, um, in fact, when men and women are actually partnered together, men are no more likely to be the partner with higher sexual desire. And people have a really hard time accepting these empirical research findings. I find there's like always a backlash every time one comes out, people are like, well, that's not me. It's like, cool. Okay. So you might be in that one third of men who have higher desire than a part than your partner. But there's about a third of the time where women have higher 
desire than their male partner. And there's about a third of the time where, you know what, we're kind of evenly enough matched that it doesn't really stand out one way or the other. But I just kind of like to make sure that that piece is being discussed anytime that I have a platform to say it, because again, this is talking about like, you know, just the spectrum of human experience, the spectrum of male sexual desire. And to say, you know what, chances are you are going to be, if you have female partners, you're going to be with a woman at some point who maybe has higher desire than you. And that doesn't mean for you that all of a sudden your desire, which is maybe completely healthy, is all of a sudden problematic. That's a relationship thing. And we just need to negotiate what that looks like in this relationship. And for women, you know, embrace your sexual desire. You don't have to tone it down because your male partner has less of a desire than you. And it doesn't mean that he's got some kind of problem or that your relationship is doomed. This is just like normal human variation. Um, so I just like to always kind of make sure that that piece is kind of being talked about, like I said, wherever possible, because again, I think these ingrained ideas that not only is men are men supposed to have high desire, always interested in sex, it's this gender piece where it's like, it's supposed to be higher than hers. And there's a lot of problems that happen for couples when that isn't the case. And yet it's not the case a lot of the time. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a, a statistic that you share in the book, which is that of couples that come to couples therapy, 50% of them have a mismatch libido problem or issue that's kind of causing some tension. And of those 50%, half of them, the woman has higher desire and half of them, men has higher desire and, and vice versa, low, low desire. So there's like this you know, 50, 50 split around, you know, people that come to, to counseling for you know, couples issues and, and where one couple or one person in that couple has a higher desire and it's 50, 50 man versus woman. So like the idea that, you know, all the, all the couples that are coming to therapy for mismatched libido, it's always the guy who's got a higher desire. It's just like a, um, yeah, just, I love, I just love sharing that statistic because I think it just speaks to that whole, um, the whole concept that you've just talked about. And, and just to kind of, you know, bring back what we were talking about before in terms of like challenging these norms and having these discussions is what I've noticed is over the last couple of years since my books come out is more and more men and more and more couples where he has a lower interest are coming to talk. And so it's like this happening, you know, anyway. And I think we're just kind of creating more space to say now we can talk about it. Like it doesn't have to be shameful. It doesn't have to be embarrassing. Like, you know, it, it's just interesting. It's not that more men have low desire this month than two years ago. Um, but I think there's just more space to actually be talking about it and saying like, this is something that we can explore and it's, it's normal. And, you know, it doesn't have to be so scary that we avoid even going there. Um, so, yeah. So anyways, you were asking kind of about like, you know, surprising findings. So that was, you know, for some people that's still quite surprising to hear. And so I think that's an important piece. Um, but the thing that kind of, um, I talk about like in the book and, and it's still, you know, to this day, I think one of the more surprising things for me when I think back what I thought about men's sexual desire versus where I'm at with my understanding now is across the board, one of the most common things that men um, shared with me about their sexual desire is that they want to feel desire too. And the thing that like some of this stuff sounds so funny to me because I'm, it's so ingrained for me now that I'm like, of course, duh, like, you know, but, but the thing is, again, socially speaking, we are raised still that men are taught not to care that much about their appearance. Like that's kind of, you know, almost like if you care too much, you, you can get, you know, 
questions about your sexual orientation or just kind of like, you know, real men don't, they're burly and all this stuff. And, you know, whereas women are, you know, for better or worse are, you know, raised to put a lot of effort into that and, you know, you know, makeup and, you know, how we dress and there's just so much attention and focus. And on top of it, men are the ones who are supposed to pursue and tell women that they look pretty, that they look good, that they're, you know, whatever they're wearing makes them look slimmer or more voluptuous or whatever it is. That is always the direction that we are like raised to kind of, you know, to have. And it's very rare that women have been taught to kind of tell men, hey, you look really cute or you're so attractive or I'm really like turned on. Do you want to have sex? Like there's this whole, again, spectrum of things that men are trained to be responsible for from desiring to initiating to pursuing and what I heard in my research and what I continue to hear in my clinical practice as well is men like not having to be that dominant role. They like not being the one pursuing, the one who's always kind of putting themselves out there, that it feels really nice and increases their desire when their female partner is giving that in return. And Again, sometimes when I say this, I'm like, this sounds so basic. Am I making it sound like, you know, this kind of epiphany that I had when I was like doing the research, but I still have people say like, nah, you know, I couldn't do that. Like women who's kind of struggle with that. Like, well, I don't want to really initiate, like, I know women should be able to, and, you know, in theory, but you know, when we've been trained to not do that, when we've been trained to be more receptive and responsive in our sexual desire to put ourselves out there and make our male partner feel desired to give compliments on their appearance, to, you know, engage in romantic touch, to initiate sex, it doesn't always come so naturally. And I think it's actually uncomfortable and maybe even, um, well, I think uncomfortable for some people and also like some men talk about not having the language to say, I want to feel desired too. Like I want to be passive sometimes. I want to be the recipient of some of this energy. Um, so that was one of the more surprising findings, um, that came up in my research. And, and I think every time I talk about it, um, you know, if I ever use that desire to feel desired, there's at least like a little bit of feedback every time where someone says like, yes, like that is the language that's my experience. And now I can kind of use that and express it. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I, um, I love the. I love the. I love the. Um, the language that you're you're giving men to use, right? Because you're you're so right. There's no. Um, there's no. Firstly, encouragement for guys to kind of talk about their feelings and their um, and, and like what it is that they they want with regards to sexuality. There's kind of like this this narrative that guys are um you know, should get turned on real quickly and should just want to you know um be penetrative and should be the pursuer and the initiator of sex and kind of guys are the ones that do sex and women are the ones that have sex done to them that's kind of like this narrative that plays out and guys are supposed to be like knowledgeable and straightforward and they shouldn't want to have anything deeper like there's no emotional stuff you know attached to sex for a lot of guys that's this kind of like story that we have for for men and so you know, so that's kind of the first thing is like there's this blockage that guys have to like, you know, there's no encouragement for them to actually go deeper or scratch at the surface of what it is that they kind of want from sex. And then secondly, there's like no language for guys. Like there's that that desire to be desired. Like that is a huge light bulb moment for, you know, when I kind of explored that in my own body, that was a huge light bulb moment for me. Um, but no one, no one gave me that kind of language. I had to kind of source it out and figure it out myself. So the power of giving 
you know, guys, hey, here's a here's a feeling that you might have. And guys can go, oh, yeah, you're right. I actually do want to be wanted. I actually do want my partner to think that I'm attractive. I actually do want her to want me. Um, so the, the, the power of just kind of like giving men you know, the vocabulary, I suppose. And that's a, that's a big part of like the work that I do is give guys ranges of uh, words to use to express kind of emotions and check in with their physical feelings as well and, and associate kind of emotional feelings to physical feelings. But um, yeah, it's a really powerful piece. And I really appreciate you, you know, offering language like that to guys because it's, um, it's so, so needed. And I love what you said about kind of just offering something there and just saying like, try it on. Like, does that fit for you or does it not? I mean, there's no prescriptive, you know, new male sexuality here, right? It's not saying, okay, so now you have to feel this way or you have like, you know, it, when sometimes like, again, there's more often than not, when I talk about this research, more people say like, oh yes, that's resonating for me. And there's kind of like something they're taking away from it, but there's always going to be someone who kind of chimes in and says, you know, that's not me. Like I, I always want sex. I don't know what guys you're talking like. And it's like, cool, buddy. Like, that's fine. Like if that's your experience and like, you know, we, there's lots of space in the world to talk about that experience. Like if that's really how you feel and you've got a really high sex drive and sex is, you know, physical and none of these things, and it's not emotional, like one, that sounds a little sad to be honest, but if that's really your experience, like that's fine. It's just that we don't really have these other, you know, spaces or like the language to use. And just to kind of, you said, just introduce it and say, does that like, can you relate to that? Is that something that maybe you experienced too? If yes, let's keep going. If not, okay. Like we're not trying to kind of like create something that's like a one size fits all, right. It's just kind of creating more space to explore and say, did the previous one size fits all work for you? Or do you maybe want to kind of switch it up a little bit? Yeah, 100%. Like I love the idea of it not being prescriptive. And, and that example that you've just given of like, you know, oh, my, my sex drive is always high and and I just want to, you know, thrust away and, and I don't want any emotional connection. It's like, okay, that's great. But when that becomes a problem is when you start saying that other guys should do that as well. And when you start projecting that onto the way other men should express themselves, which un, you know, unknowingly to a lot of the, a lot of guys, that that's what they're doing. The way that they talk about sex and the way that they shame guys for you know, other men in their, in their life for experiencing emotional connection or for exploring you know, prostate stimulation or for touching other parts of their body and, and talking about sex in a different way. When they get shamed for doing that by their mates, that's you reinforcing that particular way of being sexual and that's when it becomes a problem so um yeah that, like i'm all for you know multitudes and, and alternative ways of expressing your sexuality but when you start trying to prescribe that to others that's when it becomes a bit of an issue yeah and i'll, I'll just piggyback off that last piece around that emotional connection because that's another chapter in my book is talking about how when we you know consider men's desire we do talk about those surface level things right like I got turned on because my partner was wearing like something sexy, like low cut shirt or short skirt or lingerie or whatever. And again, those things are great. Like, you know, being turned on by, you know, visual stimulus, like lovely women get turned on by that too. Men get turned on by it. No problem whatsoever. The problem is that's kind of like where the conversation about men's desire stops, right? Like, you know, especially more casual situations, like why don't you hook up? She's hot. It's like, okay, but (laughs) What's an important part for a lot of men is that emotional connection and particularly for men who are in relationships and, and that's like the men who informed the work that I've done in my research in my book, you know, they, they would talk about how, like, I don't necessarily want to have sex just because my partner looks good. Like if we're not feeling close, 
not feeling connected, if we haven't had a good conversation recently, like if we're, you know, in the middle of a fight and haven't really got over it, if I'm not feeling heard, like all of these pieces have such a significant and important impact on our sexual desire and like impacts men and women alike. Right. But we just don't talk about that part with men, but it struck me as just so critical. Like, of course, like sex is an intimate act. We're sharing our bodies with another person. And if we are mad at that person or not feeling safe and loved by that person, like to expect our bodies just to get super turned on in that moment and like want to penetrate, like that's a tall order. (laughs) And, and it's completely normal and completely okay to say that emotional connection is a big piece of whether I'm interested or not in sex. Um, And that doesn't make you weak and that doesn't make you like, you know, less manly. Like these are key parts of just being a human being and being in an intimate relationship. Um, So, yeah. So having that, that emotional connection, again, it was just something that a lot of men have, have described to me as just being such a key part of whether or not they're interested in sex. Yeah. And that reminds me of like another um, piece that you shared in your book, which was like this idea that guys will take, any sex will take bad sex over no sex, right? This idea that like, you know, oh, she's hot. Why don't you, why don't you hook up with her? It's like, well, well, you know, and, and you were both drunk and whatever it is, right? But the, the sex is you know going to be, you know, f- you know foreseeably bad. Um, and guys are just like, you're, you're kind of expected to, to take that uh, rather than say, say no. And I guess that plays into this, like guys will say yes to, to anything. Right. And, and guys perpetuate that narrative themselves, right. That every hole is a goal, you know, slang that we use and, um, and that we should always be up for sex is, is kind of all tied into that as well. And I was wondering if there was anything that you wanted to, to share with regards to that. Yeah. I mean, um, like what you're talking about with more of that hookup culture. And I, I'm always kind of aware of that too. And because my clients, you know, sometimes they are single and that's like what they're navigating when it comes to these relationships though. Um, you know, especially the longer term relationships, you know, men would describe to me that there is this expectation. And again, this kind of internalization, I should be in the mood for sex, I should take any sex that comes my way. And so if a female partner kind of is just like, hey, you want to like do it like, but you could tell like she's not really in the mood, or she's not really so like excited, or isn't putting in a lot of effort. Or again, we're in the middle of a fight, or we haven't really been connecting so much, and we can't really read where our partner's coming from. Like, there's lots of reasons why men might not really be that excited for sex. And this idea that like, oh, she's throwing me a bone, I should say yes, or or I'm less of a man, or there's something wrong with me, or she's going to be mad, or she's going to think that something's wrong, or it's going to lead to a bigger fight, or, fight later, so I should just say yes now. Like, there's just a lot that's kind of going on, um, you know, in terms of like this expectation that any sex is welcome sex. Um, but men that I'm talking to for my research and clinical experience, again, like really reiterate, like, I don't want to have sex in those situations. Like if she just is doing it for me or just wants it to be over or all these other emotional things aren't like, you know, going well, I'd kind of rather have no sex at all. (laughs) Like, you know, just to have sex for the sake of having sex, if it's not enjoyable and not pleasurable, um, you know, I think we have to kind of question, like, what is that motivation? Like, what are we really getting out of it at that point? Um, and, and just kind of getting permission. Like, it's okay to say no, it's okay to stop. It's okay to not want. Um, and you know, we should be having sex for pleasure and for, you know, connection. And if those things aren't being met, then, then again, why are we doing it? (laughs) I think we need to kind of start poking holes in that, in that rationale. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me of like my own 
personal experience. I'm not sure if you know um, Betty Martin and her Wheel of Consent um, framework. Um, it's amazing, and, and I want to um, speak into it a little bit more. But the um, the practice that she did when I did some training with her made me realize, or this kind of like personal light bulb moment came up for me, which was um, wanting to wanting to not be like penetrative or wanting to like if I was you know touching um my sexual partner or if I was you know being intimate with with someone like the pressure that I felt to escalate and to drive for for penetrative sex and to like be a quote-unquote man and what a man should do in those scenarios is kind of be the assertive dominant guy who you know has you know who goes for penetration that was like the, the the big light bulb moment for me was like not every time I have sex do I want to be penetrative and I was like how many times have I kind of crossed my own boundaries, right? And and gone, you know, and just gone with that narrative because that's what I was expected to do because I was the guy in that scenario. Um, you know, and, and how many times have I actually not wanted to do that, but just, you know, qu- quash that thought because that would be unmanly or, you know, she would think less of me or whatever it is. And I had this like really big, um, yeah, g- g- a lot of guilt and shame for like, you know, um, I kind of felt like I disrespected my own boundaries and that I'd crossed my own, um, you know, my own limits. And, and so that was like a huge light bulb moment for me. And I share that with, with guys, um, from, you know, when we're doing kind of personal sharings and guys are like, Oh fuck, you're right. Like how many times do I actually not want to be penetrative? And do I actually just want to cuddle or just you know, be sexual in a different way? Um, but because we've got this like narrow definition of what sex should be, and then also we've got this kind of rigid idea of who does what in a sexual scenario uh, between a man and a woman, um, you, there's not a lot of room for exploring much else. And, and that tends to be a lot of the work that I do with guys today is just opening up the door for them to experience sexuality and get, have their sexual needs met and, you know, make sure their partner's getting their sexual needs met in a variety of different ways that doesn't just look like, you know, this one narrow um, way of exploring it. Absolutely. And I think when we're talking about, you know, consent in that way and realizing that there can be all these different ways of saying yes and all these different ways of saying no, and we can maybe want this, but not that. And, you know, maybe we just want to have kind of, you know, like oral sex, but not penetrative sex, the more that we know that we can say no, that it doesn't always have to look the same way, then the more enjoyment I think we get out of saying yes. We're saying yes to the things that we truly want. We're getting to kind of enthusiastically lean into the things that we're excited about or turned on by, Um, you know, so like, it's kind of like being able to say no kind of creates all this more exciting space to say yes. Um, So I think kind of just breaking that down and saying it doesn't have to look the same way every time. It doesn't have to include penetration it doesn't have to look like this like male model of like you know dominance and and you know being kind of the the thruster and the penetrator and and all of that it can look a lot of different ways um so i love that point yeah and the um uh, just to quickly speak into betty's framework i i definitely see it having this correlation with the stuff that we've been talking about today um particularly you shared something before which was about um I'll I'll have to paraphrase. I don't remember exactly what you said, but it was about um, like men are the givers of pleasure, right? A lot of guys don't really know how to receive. And especially when it comes to like being desired and having kind of attention and affection put onto them, 
when that happens for a lot of guys, they can feel quite uncomfortable because they're like, well, this isn't how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to be the one that's doing sex to you or, or, you know, outsourcing and projecting my pleasure and desire onto you. I'm the one that does the desiring. You're the one that receives my desire. So when that role is reversed for a lot of guys without there being a lot of conversation about it um, or them acknowledging that they might want it, it can feel quite confronting and, and, um, and, yeah, quite confusing for guys because they're like, this is not how it's quote unquote supposed to go. Um, and and Betty's wheel of consent framework, um, it breaks that down and says, okay, well, let's let's think about, you know, who who is this for? Who's this who's this touch and who's this um, this interaction for? Is it for you or is it for me or is it for for both of us? And um, and allowing for that space to go, okay, well, you know, I'm doing uh, I'm doing this for me and something that I want right now is to is to you know feel touched in this way or, or for you to do this to me and um, and so it, speaking about language and giving giving terminology and vocabulary to people um, yeah it's an amazing um, way to to start learning about how to ask for what it is that you want and how to explore other sensations and feelings and I definitely think it complements everything we've been talking about today so I just want to s- just slide that in there as a bit of a plug for for Betty's work as well. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, we're, and we've been talking, and I think for good reason about, you know, when men are in the more, wanting to be more in the passive, you know, recipient, you know, having a female partner initiate sex, not having to be in that dominant role, receiving, you know, being desired and all of that. The other side, though, is that, you know, in a lot of relationships, men still are, you know, initiating sex, that they're the ones, whether it's expected or because it's very comfortable for them to do, maybe they like doing it. Um, you know, it were in a relationship, perhaps it's more kind of that like 50-50 split more or less. But when men are initiating, I think like another thing that's important to be talking about here is, you know, sex is a vulnerable act and putting ourselves out there to say, hey, I'm interested in connecting with you in that way. I want to have sex with you. I find you attractive. I'm turned on by you. I want to experience this moment together. Like, the way that men have talked about that experience of initiating sex is with vulnerability. It's not this, um, you know, hey, you want to grab pizza tonight? Like, w- like it's not detached from emotion. It's not like easy to do necessarily all the time. It's not that because men have been more socialized with maybe perhaps more practice or experience initiating sex than women typically are, that it's like somehow like easy and, you know, something that they just can do kind of in rote, like, you know. They're not robots like men like it's you're human and there's like this full range of experiences that we have and emotional needs that are being met through sex and so something that catches my ear a lot in therapy and i write about again in the book is that you know to be putting ourselves out there like these are bids for connection and that is a risk that we're taking because we don't know if our partner is going to say yes or no and men talk about how that experience of sexual rejection isn't just like, uh, dang, like I didn't get laid or I didn't get off. And so, you know, woohoo, I'm going to pat in the corner. It's like, I am trying to experience something with my partner that is meaningful and intimate. And of course it can be pleasurable and it can be kinky and it can be all of those things. It's not one or the other, but it's like a reaching out. I'm being vulnerable. I'm putting myself out there. Do you want me to? And when men receive no's, <laughs> which happens for all of us, right? And we want partners to say, no, if you're not in the mood, you're not in the mood. We want to be in this together. But men in my research have talked about how repeated sexual rejection and kind of not just the no, the kind of the way the no is being done. If it's assuming that all you want is sex, if it's assuming that all you care about is that physical gratification, 
if it's kind of ignoring that like need for emotional connection and kind of this deeper exploration of our sexuality, um, that that really takes a toll on, on men's esteem, their confidence, their like feelings about the relationship. Um, and I think it's important again, you know, to create space to talk about like that is a normal and understandable experience. Like one talking about sex as more than a physical act leaving space for men to describe that they're looking for more than a physical act. I mean, I do so much of that in therapy when there's a mismatch of desire, when it is the man who's got higher desire than their female partner, you know, getting him to describe what he's looking for during sex, what he's trying to achieve that, like, you know, I'm looking to feel closer to you. I feel more relaxed after, you know, it makes me feel like we have something special that I don't have with other friends. Like when men can like, are asked to like say what you really are getting from sex, I feel like it's such like a window into like men's soul. And it's so important first, especially female partners to hear like, oh, we have to start challenging. Like, I kind of thought you just wanted to get off. And I just happened to be like your only socially acceptable partner to do that with. That's not a nice feeling, <laughs> but kind of talking about all the things that we're looking for and experience during sex, we start to realize that initiating is actually a much more vulnerable, risky act than I think we give um, credit for. Yeah. Yeah, that's a a huge um, a huge piece of like this this puzzle around men's sexuality, and I see like you know um, dating coaches and like you know sexuality people in the sexuality space kind of you know teaching guys how to get over rejection. Like you're going to get rejected. Like here's how you can get over it, and here's how you can combat it, and and you know never get rejected, and 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 like this kind of narrative that i kind of see playing out underneath that is like that um kind of what you just shared that kind of rejection doesn't mean anything and like it's just uh you know and and if you get affected by it then then you're weak and there's something wrong with you and that you should be trying to not be affected by it and you should try to not acknowledge those emotions that kind of come up if you do feel rejected by a sexual partner or, or you know whether that's a relationship or a casual um scenario so like i think there's this kind of inherently um uh, in 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 the way that these people are talking about it is this like you know it's it's weak if you feel rejected and that you shouldn't feel rejected and that you should just kind of like get back up on the horse and and try again and and not go through that process of acknowledging you know what emotions are coming up and the fact that rejection does hurt you know and and, and that it's you know maybe something that you need to to work through and and um yeah and just and and just some acknowledgement of that rejection i think is like really important for men and i think if we're kind of you know just going off of that if we go into it thinking that rejection is just maybe going to happen and it's not supposed to hurt. It's like, we're almost kind of starting an interaction with some walls up, like with some barrier, with some armor, right? Like we're kind of going into it, like protecting ourselves versus being completely open and vulnerable, right? We're already kind of anticipating like, oh, hey, you want to do it? Okay. I didn't really want it anyway. Like we've already kind of put up a block of intimacy before it's even started. Um, and so I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge it is vulnerable and and that's an important part and i think an opportunity to experience a deeper connection and like again i was saying before a deeper connection i think sometimes think of like oh it has to be all like lovey and fluffy i'm like it can be you can have a really deep connection during like bdsm or like any other kind of kinky sex like it, it's not saying it has to be this like slow gentle making love just because we're being vulnerable like it certainly can be but it can be a lot of things if we're kind of coming at it from that more authentic place yeah. Yeah. I think there's a definition that Brene Brown offers of vulnerability, which is emotional uncertainty and risk taking. And I'm like, when I, when I share with guys around being vulnerable, 
that's usually the definition that I'm use, using because, you know, it, it, it is un, like you're, you're emotionally uncertain. You're kind of like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to, I don't know what's going to happen here for me in terms of my emotions. I don't know what emotions my partner's going to be feeling. I don't know what emotions this is going to evoke if I going to go into this. And that's where that risk taking comes in. It's like you're kind of sharing a part of your soul as you so beautifully put it as well, right? When you start talking about what it is that you want from sex and what it is that turns you on and what it is that you desire and what you fantasize about. And when you start, you know, um, you know, going down that route with a partner, for example, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk in that, right? Because the risk is, you know, that's a, that's, um, I'm a big believer in like your sexuality being an intrinsic part of yourself um, you know, and, and your sexuality informing like who you are in the world. And so when you, share that with a person you're kind of bearing this really intimate part of you and and to have that to have someone kind of shut that down and be like you know that's weird or there's something wrong with you for wanting that or you know flat out no um you know the risk is like getting hurt right and and the risk is like fuck that's that that's painful like you know i'm gonna close that part of myself down and not share that with another person or whatever it might be but there's uh, there's a lot of risk in in being open about your sexuality and and asking for what it is that you want and going outside of the you're coloring outside of the lines so to speak so um yeah i think i think there's a lot of fear around acknowledging that rejection hurts and acknowledging that you know there's more to sex than just this surface level stuff I am. I'm just mindful of time, um, but I'm wondering: is there uh, is there a, a nugget of wisdom, or is there a? Um, yeah, I kind of think uh, someone asked me this question. I thought it was really um, really pertinent. Was if you uh, could put up a billboard on one of the major highways in your local area that had a message for people, so that everyone that drove past could kind of see this message and kind of take that message on board. What would that uh, What would that be? What are some what, What's a uh, a brief nugget of wisdom that people could could take away? Goodness, you're asking me the most uh, condensed question at the end of the <laughs> day for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, is my brain functioning enough to be concise? This is always my struggle. I like write dissertations and books, so I have like all this time to think what I want to say. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I have like a nice little nugget, but I, I mean, I think really it's just about let's be like questioning and curious about men's desire. Like, let's just be talking about it. Let's be asking if these masculine stereotypical norms are really working for anybody anymore. And, you know, giving ourselves permission to to try on a different size <laughs> to say, you know, is this working or do I want to do it a little bit differently? Mm. Um, so I'm sure there's a catchier little thing in there somewhere <laughs> that I can like when it's not 9 p.m. for me, but um, but yeah, I, I think the real thing is just kind of let, let's just give space to kind of question these things and be curious again about men's sexual desire. So stop assuming and start asking. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Stop assuming and start asking. There you go. That's a beautiful, catchy little okay. thing we can put on a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> well um thank you so much sarah yeah. for, for spending the time chatting with me and i um yeah I, like i said I, I value your work really highly and um totally recommend your book to to all the people that that ask me about male sexuality and, and couples stuff so yeah i really appreciate you spending the time oh that's awesome i appreciate you inviting me on and it was a pleasure to chat with you and i'm glad that you're doing the work over in your end of the world that you're doing too it sounds really important yeah thank you very much <laughs>